0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Don't worry, I haven't defected to another podcast. (laughs) Anyway, coming up on today's episode after all of the excitement of yesterday uh, and uh, PMQ's Unpacked delivering another record day on the Redbox podcast so do tell your friends if you've only recently uh, discovered us welcome along this is what we do every day we bring you the best of my times radio show so we bring you the big thing that we do at 11 o'clock every day and the columnist panel our big thing today the art of a defection after that extraordinary moment when Christian Wakeford just before PMQ's on Wednesday switched from Conservative to Labour. We look at the art of the defection. How do you plot it? How do you keep it a secret? And do you have any regrets afterwards with not one, not two, not three, but four people who've been there and done that? Uh, So that's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. But first, like I said, we always kick off with the columnist panel. And on a Thursday, it's night at the Marriott. It's India night and James Marion. Let's talk about the concept of taking responsibility.
2: Yes, let's. Um, well, the, the, I don't think that we would be in the mess that we are in um, if Boris Johnson had just fessed up. You, I mean, I've said this before on on your show. You know, if you step outside the line, let alone step outside the line as dramatically as seems to have happened here, you need to. You need to say. You need to say. You, need, you can. You can try and get people on side that way. Whether you do or not isn't really the point. But you've got to. You you can't behave constantly as if the rules don't apply to you. And then when you're caught, when you're banged to rights, go, I didn't know, or I wasn't sure, or I don't make the rules, even though he does. Or, you know, you can't kind of, you can't wriggle. It's You can't squirm and be wriggly. It's really, really, it doesn't, it's really unattractive, but also it just sort of doesn't wash. So this idea this morning that the threat has gone away, because he acquitted himself with more force at PMQs yesterday than he had uh, during his um, very strange and odd uh, interview with uh, Beth Rigby the day before. The idea that, you know, the danger has moved on, which we're all being asked to believe this morning, is complete nonsense. The danger hasn't, the, the problem hasn't gone away for the voters. You know, it may have gone away for Um, Tory MPs who behave like schoolboys who all, you know, when thingy defected, are all kind of buoyed up and go... It's like children. It's like children going... We didn't want to play with you anyway. We're having a much nicer time playing by ourselves. We don't care that you've gone. <laughs> it's so silly. It's so silly. And whenever I watch PMQs, which isn't that often, I just sort of, you know, the the kind of thought bubble over my head is saying, "We can see you. We can see you. <laughs> Stop. We can hear you, and we can see you, and we can read your body language, and we can." Anyway, yes. So no. he... The, Owning up to things, if you do things wrong, is the only way out. Otherwise, you back yourself into such a corner that you are doomed forevermore. Here's an interesting uh, thing, James. Um, uh,
1: I would defend David Cameron on that he I think he gets a hard time, but he done a thing and it went wrong, and then he walked. And instead of, you know, the, a couple of years later, Theresa May calls an election. It's an absolute disaster. She limps on. And, you know, um, sometimes just saying. Yeah. You know, the game's up. There's something to be said for that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. What what fascinates me is it seems to be a real kind of feature of Boris Johnson's personal psychology. People always talk about his total inability to confront bad news. You know, his boosterism It always has to be good news. And I think there are a few points in his career when he's had the opportunity to go, OK, yes, I did a bad thing. And he's just been totally unable to sort of grasp the nettle to confront the bad thing so you know when he was um you know when he was fired from uh michael howard's um shadow cabinet as culture secretary for lying uh, lying about his um extramarital affair that was just this whole saga that was like all these kind of weird denials he was calling it invert an inverted pyramid of piffle and just this like this real ability he has to like in the belief that the bad thing can't possibly happen and just should not be confronted at all points, it all just kind of drags out and drags on. And it seems like the same thing is the same thing is happening again. And yeah, obviously, you could just like, take on the story, cause yourself a very hard, rough couple of weeks, maybe, and then just sort of fly out of it, because you're just not dragged on by lying. And, you know, lying, you know, just makes people almost angrier,
1: I think, than, you know, the initial rule breaking. The weird thing is, India, we're now sort of in a position of people sort of weighing up, well, can he get away with it? I think he could. You know, he did all this other stuff. I mean, away from the central question of did he break the rules that he himself put in place, which he basically admitted he did do, you know, saying I didn't realise there was a party until I was on my third tequila is not necessarily... Uh, a defence which started to be caught. And there have been in some incredible um, stories of of people in almost identical situations who I think I, was, I saw there's a case of one woman who turned up to leave a birthday card outside someone's house and when they got there, like, there was a gathering, but they got fined and and all that mm. uh, sort of thing. That Actually, um, the question of has he done something wrong? Well, yes, because he's apologised for it. Um, should you at some point take personal responsibility for, for your own decisions? I'd have thought sane people would say yes. And the fact that the vaccination programme has gone well is essentially irrelevant.
2: Yeah, it's got nothing to do with it. I mean, it's great that the vaccination programme has gone well, but also, you know, we do have the highest number of deaths in Europe. So the whole thing wasn't an unqualified triumph. And hi- again, hiding behind it. I mean, he kept saying it yesterday and people kept repeating the question. There was a really telling moment, I thought, before uh towards the end of PMQs, but before David Davis, when a um, a woman Labour MP with brown curly hair, I don't know her name, asked him about the party again. And he kind of, he shook his head and he did this kind of motion, this sort of blah, blah, blah motion with his hand. You know, he kind of waved, rolled his hand around as if to say, oh, why are you still bothering me with this? That looked so, dis- that was so dismissive and so, you know, I've already told you, I'm sorry, we'll have to wait. Sue Grey wish Sue Gray would hurry up, by the way.
1: I mean,
2: um I feel like she should go a bit faster maybe, but, um, but 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 it was so dismissive. It was so kind of yeah, well I've said sorry, didn't know, da da da, move on. But nobody nobody is moving on. Voters aren't moving on, voters are still irate with really good reason. James, you, on the
1: other hand, have written a piece about uh, your column today about how people who break the rules to get away with it. Actually, you know, this, this cavalier attitude to, to life actually sometimes helps people.
3: Yeah, I mean, my perception is that it served Boris Johnson exceptionally well so far. You know, every stage of his career, there's been, you know, just some, not just rule-breaking, but something like totally outrageous. You know, I think it was um, within really not very long of him starting at The Times that uh, he'd been fabricating quotes um, on the front page of the newspaper, which is just like for any journalist, that's just like an extraordinary, bonkers thing to do. And that's just like, you know, within the first few months of his of his career. And I just kind of think Boris Johnson has very correctly taken the message from his, you know, extremely successful progress uh, through the media and politics so far that breaking the rules is absolutely the right thing to do, because it's served him well every sing- at every single step of the way. It's got him into trouble. But hasn't really ultimately seemed to have harmed him that, that much. Here's the prime minister. I think he's going to get away with this ultimately. And yeah, I was just sort of, my column was just about like, what about the way that our society is constructed that allows people like that to just sort of bounce through it, just sort of seemingly unharmed? And why, if you do want to really succeed, maybe, you know, if you are, uh, if you are dangerously ambitious, and maybe a little bit
1: evil, uh, this might be the way to go. You you Are you, you strike me as a sort of, Man who follows the rules, though, James.
3: Yes, yeah, I am, and I I sort of—I think it fascinates me because I'm so, I'm so sort of, I'm so sheep-like and law-abiding that I'm always like sort of slightly kind of awed and um, uh, sort of just baffled by people who don't follow the rules. I just do. I always interested in the psychology.
1: Um, What about you, India? Are you a wild rule breaker?
2: No, not at all. I'm very, um, I'm very rule adherent. Particularly as I get older, I wasn't necessarily always in my youth. <laughs> but, you know, I, I lo- no, I like a rule, but I mean, I get it was James's column. I get I get the idea that if you consider yourself a kind of charming maverick, you know, who can get away with stuff and go through life kind of kicking things out of the way or or, or, or however else you want to manifest your you know rebellious streak that's all fine but we come back in a kind of slightly circular way to the original point which is that when you're caught when somebody says what about all these boxes scattered about everywhere you've got to go i kicked them you can't go i don't know i don't know what they're doing there. i didn't put them there you know you've got you've got to own the boxes you've got to say that's my mess i'm sorry it's my mess i made it and only i made it
1: own your mess. I suppose. Own your mess. Own your mess. I suppose that's that's the there's, 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 I suppose there are different rules and bending the rules and 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 all that sort of thing. There are, you know, there's, there's. I suppose breaking convention. Quite a lot of what Boris Johnson has done has got has been to go against convention, which is one thing. But then to to break the rules and then you know appear to lie about it. That seems to be the broader problem.
3: Yeah, and I, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of Boris Johnson's success kind of relies on the slightly grey area that, like, we all know he's very eccentric; that he's not really doing the, doing things the way everyone else would do it, and no one's quite that kind of eccentric force field. Kind of confuses people, I think, about you know his been allowed to get away through a lot of his career with people not quite thinking well where's the line between this is just boris johnson being extremely eccentric and oh he's done something that's completely unacceptable whereas people who do tend to follow the rules in the rest of their lives i think it's much more obvious when they have crossed a serious line whereas boris johnson is all this sort of blur and oh that's just boris being boris and i think he's used that ambiguity uh, extremely effectively and um, I think you can sort of look. I think there are a few people when you sort of look around. It's not uncommon in uh, very ruthless, quite dangerous, uh, successful people. I always think about people, um, people running, like you know big tech companies in America um, always, often, or not always, but often have this kind of aura of eccentricity and, you know, they're doing things, they're so crazy, they're so zany, they're moving fast and breaking things, and then suddenly you're like, oh God, that was really bad, but they just seemed so eccentric at the time, we couldn't quite work out, you know, what was was going on with them, and we didn't quite know how to interpret them, and I think it's that ambiguity that uh, Boris Johnson has successfully sort of leveraged.
2: Also, those people are more interesting to watch, you know, whether it's in the context of, of I don't know, Elizabeth's home at Theranos or Mark Zuckerberg or Boris Johnson. You know, you think, what are they going to do next? Or what are they going to say? Or how are they going to wriggle out of this one? It's more interesting to watch than a kind of grey man in a grey suit behaving with impeccable probity all the time. But it does have a kind, it does, I think, people's tolerance of it expires at some point.
1: That's really interesting. Just when you were saying that, I was sort of just thinking about endless Conservative Party conferences that I've covered. I wouldn't like to work out what percentage of my life I've spent in party conferences, but the ones where basically, like you said, lots of men, still mostly men, in grey suits giving boring speeches that nobody was interested in. And there was always Boris Johnson Day Mm. when he's, I think, probably when he was mayor uh, mainly. He would turn up, there'd be hullabaloo, and he'd have, he'd literally have a media scrum from the train station to the conference centre. He'd turn Mm. up, he'd give this speech, which was a combination of sort of gags. And things that weren't true, or, you know, always oh, isn't he funny making up all those things about Europe or UKIP or whatever it might be? Mm-hmm. And then he'd go off again. And it was, it was marvellous, marvellous. The last thing we want is boring old um, Philip Hammond talking about how he's going to balance the books when we can have this funny guy turning up mm-hmm. and, um, and being very funny. And then maybe it's one of those things, James, about where your strengths actually also end up being your weaknesses. Your, yeah. your, your colourfulness, your willingness to bend the walls, to make a scene without really being across the detail. Suddenly, that becomes your... It, actually, Bonus Boris Johnson's biggest flaws. Yeah, absolutely. And you get
3: the sense that he's not quite... You know, he's maybe not quite in control of... The, totally in control of all those characteristics. So sometimes they do, they're incredibly useful for him, and then he just can't stop behaving the same way in Downing Street, and then suddenly it's a total disaster. The stuff about men in grey suits reminds me of... Um, I always feel slightly sort of uh, depressed when I think about this. The first thing I remember anyone ever telling me about politics in, in my life was being um, quite small, I and my mum saying, the problem about politics at the moment is everyone's just so boring. Everyone's, everyone's just, you know, there's no there's no, there's no eccentrics in politics anymore. And then, obviously, over the course of my adult life, it's all gone very badly wrong in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I remember, and I've, I've, this was actually the, base of the basis of my first stand-up show, but the, when I first started covering politics in 2005, for, for about a month, the biggest story in politics was that David Cameron didn't have a tie on. An endless <laughs> think pieces and uh, you know what does this mean for the Conservative Party? What does this mean for politics and all of that? Um, and it's yeah, and people would say, "Oh, you weren't there for Maastricht in the nineties. You missed all the good stuff. Politics is boring now." They said in two thousand five. Yeah,
3: it was watching that um, it was watching <laughs> that new Labour documentary that came out in the BBC uh, a few months ago. I mean, obviously, the you know there was new Labour drama, but so much of it. Even in this documentary made, you know, sort of uh, 10 or so years after the fact was just like these quite sort of all these like media scandals around things that in the context of what's going on now just seem quite sort of minor. And, you know, they'd just be like, you know, the 10th thing on the list of like disasters that have gone wrong.
1: But like a round between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair on, you know, borrowing rules. Yeah, something. weeks and weeks of front pages, and <laughs> nuance, and, and all yeah. that sort of thing. Um, uh, before I let you both go, we've been talking about um, Boris Johnson and uh, Tracy Emin wants a thing taken down off the wall. What what should he hang on the wall instead? Um,
2: uh, Ooh, India, don't come to me first. I need to think very quickly. Go on, James. Um,
1: I think I think I share some of the ones that we've had in. I think yeah. w- I think more passion was was frantically a dangerous thing to tell Boris Johnson, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is what this thing said in um, yeah in said? the neon signs. So I think passion. he I
3: think he needs uh, I think he. Needs something I and mean, then you could do the opposite and get something extremely calming like some you know those Monet water lilies or something that will just be completely um, something you know, really just calm him down
2: yeah uh, something really soothing and 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 plain and grey maybe
1: India Night and James Merritt. then of course you can read James and the Times India and the Sunday Times just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Box. up next is the art of the defection
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. Yes, so around this time yesterday, Christian Wakeford became a changing man, crossing the floor from the blue team to the red team to become a Labour MP, Conservative MP, elected as a Conservative, of course, in uh, Bury South, crossing the floor to become a Labour MP just before PMQs to make it as as explosive as possible. Well, I need to say, at PMQs, the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, welcomed him to the party. Can I start by warmly welcoming the Honourable
4: Member for Bury South to his new place And to the Parliamentary Labour Party. Mr Speaker, like so many people up and down
1: the country, he has concluded that the Prime Minister and the Conservative Party have shown themselves incapable of offering the leadership and government this country deserves. So Keir Starmer's cock-a-hoop. This was Boris Johnson's response. As for Bury South... Let me say to the the right, gentlemen,
3: that the Conservative Party won Berry South for the first time in generations under this Prime Minister, uh, with an agenda of uniting, uniting, and levelling up and delivering for the people of Berry South. And, Mr. Speaker, we will win again in Berry South at the next election under this
1: Prime Minister. That was Boris Johnson's response. Well, the man himself. Christian Wakeford insisted yesterday it wasn't a quick decision.
3: This isn't a matter of just deciding this morning, you know, I, I want to be a Labour MP. This has been many months. There's been a lot of you know build-up to this and a lot of soul searching that's taken many sleepless nights.
1: So what makes someone want to defect, to leave the party, often they've been in for many, many years, and cross over to the other side. In fact, in the past 30 years, 23 MPs have directly defected to a rival party in the Commons, crossing the floor in one way or another, sometimes sitting as an independent before uh, jumping again to join another party. So what we thought we'd do today is unpack the art of a defection with some of the people who've been there and done it. Now, Alan Howarth was the first Conservative MP to defect directly from the party to Labour back in 1995. See, no, nothing is new. Conservative MP, Conservative Prime Minister on the rocks after years and years of being in power. new Labour leader comes along... And Alan decides to defect. He explained to me why.
4: Well, it was the most difficult decision I think I've ever had to take in my life, except possibly a divorce. And it was indeed a kind of divorce. I moved towards the decision that I took in the autumn of 95. Over quite a long period, I was becoming increasingly appalled by what my party then led by John Major was doing. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. Uh, Public services were being cut in ways that I simply couldn't defend my constituents. The party seemed to be in a kind of chaos, and it made all the difference that new Labour had come on the scene. I would have found it impossible to cross the floor and join the old Labour Party of the 1970s, but with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and Robin Cook, the leading figures in new Labour, it seems to me that. New Labour was the kind of Social Democrat Party that I'd been looking for all my life. And and, uh, and so
1: how did it happen? Did you think, oh, I think I might defect? Do you go and find someone in the Labour Party? Does somebody from the Labour Party come to find you?
4: Well, it so happened, it was quite convenient that Tony Blair and I had been parliamentary pairs. And indeed, we'd, we'd come into Parliament at the same election in 1983 and made our maiden speeches in the same debate. So we did know each other. So uh, I went to see Tony And actually, he he counselled me to think very carefully indeed about what I might do, recognising that it was going to be pretty rough for me and that there'd be huge uncertainties for me
5: thereafter.
4: Um, And I did. And I didn't change my view. I was convinced that it was the right thing to do. And so I crossed the floor. And I've never regretted it for a moment since. And what was the
1: reaction from your colleagues? There's been quite the backlash from Conservative MPs towards Christian Wakeford. What was your experience when you took that decision?
6: Well, it was explosive.
4: I mean, uh, until you've been on the receiving end of the collective malice of the Tory media, you don't really know what it's like. And there there was outrage, and very understandable outrage. But at the same time, after the first 24 hours, and when I got back to Westminster, because this was in the party conference season, when, when Parliament resumed 10 days later, I was greeted with sorrow at least as much as anger. When I, when I got to Westminster, there was a pile of probably about 40 handwritten letters from uh, parliamentary former colleagues, uh, which were amazingly understanding and generous. One or two of them were frankly envious. And it sort of settled down. I mean, it wasn't the hardest part of what I did was parting company with friends and colleagues and people who had trusted me. And that's why it took as long as it did for me to make up my mind and do the deed. Um, I didn't expect anything other than vilification. And uh, it it was a very happy thing that actually people were as understanding as they turned out to be.
1: A little bird Tommy, me that you played a bit of a role in the Christian Wakeford defection, is that right?
4: Well, he wanted to talk to me to get my thoughts about what it might be like, what the experience might be like. And I wanted to be sure that he understood just how rough it could be and how hard it could be for him, for him and his family. Let me say, I really hope the media will lay off his family. It was just hideous, what some of the things that that were done to me at the time by the tabloids, and indeed by the Tory whips who were egging the tabloids on. I just hope that that kind of foul behaviour won't occur in this instance. Um, but I wanted to be sure, you know, to, for him to be sure that he was re- truly ready for it, he and his family, his, his office, because uh, there was going to be a lot to cope with. And I Wanted to talk to him about policy. Convinced myself that he really would be at home in the Labour Party, and I, I do believe that he will be. And uh, so, you know, I congratulate him on his courage and his integrity, and acting as he judges very courageously in the best interests of the people of Berry South. And I know that he's he's already got a great welcome from the Labour Party. <laughs>
1: And just finally, obviously these sort of historical comparisons can be over-egged a bit. I mean, the truth is that Keir Starmer isn't Tony Blair in 1995, is
4: he? I think what Christian has seen is that in contrast to the chaos in the Tory party and their manifest unfitness for government, and in the absence of assuming that Boris Johnson is on the skids at his terminal the absence of a convincing alternative leader, which is causing many Tory MPs to hold back. In contrast to that, he sees the Labour Party led by Keir Starmer as a, as a serious, decent, competent social democratic party, which is going to be dedicated to enabling the proceeds of economic growth to be distributed fairly. It's going to look after people who need support and, uh, ensure there are decent public services and social security, particularly for vulnerable communities like the one that Christian Wakeford represents. Here is where the British people are. Christian is now where the British people are. And I think that uh, there's going to be a great deal of understanding and support for him up in the northwest as well as across the country.
1: That was Alan Howarth uh, speaking to me a little earlier. He was the first Conservative MP to defect directly from the Tories to Labour way back in 1995 and uh, revealing that he did play a part in Christian Wakeford uh, making the leap just yesterday. Uh, well, let's fast forward now to another defection. This time in the summer of 2014, uh, David Cameron, still leading the coalition, of course, and Douglas Carswell, long-standing Conservative MP, uh, decided to defect to join UKIP. At that point, he triggered a by-election in Clacton where was the MP and won, becoming UKIP's first elected MP for the party. But I started off by asking Douglas why he decided to defect.
5: Well, I was only really in politics to try and get Britain out of the European Union. I was unhappy with the way that David Cameron's Conservatives were talking the talk of Euroscepticism, but not actually committing to a referendum. So I I really used my position as a Conservative MP to try maximum leverage, to try to force the issue of a referendum onto the agenda. And, I may say I I think I was quite successful in doing that. I started to feel uncomfortable being a Conservative when it became clear to me that, despite his earlier promises at the so-called Bloomberg speech, David Cameron wasn't really going to follow through. So for me, it was about principle. I I didn't really have that many qualms about switching from my then party, the Conservative Party, to uh, UKIP, which at the time was the only party in British politics committed to a referendum and getting us out. In terms of the mechanics, I reached out to a number of people in the Eurosceptic movement who were both um, closely aligned with some in UKIP and closely aligned with some Conservatives, and I I put out feelers. Um, I took a decision very, very early on that if I was going to make the switch, I had to call a by-election, and I couldn't really see... alternative. A number of people suggested to me that what I might try and do was just to switch parties without calling a by-election, but it was pretty obvious to me from the get-go that that was a non-runner. It was the very end of the summer recess, the summer of 2014, and I was obviously nervous. I knew I was going to put myself into the national spotlight. I didn't know that I was going to win the by-election that was going to follow. I, I simply didn't know. I thought there's a fair chance that I might switch parties, trigger a by-election, and be out of politics within a few weeks. So I, I didn't really know. I, of course, I was nervous. But, you know, I'd had many more sleepless nights staying on as a Conservative MP, not really doing what I wanted to do, which is try and get Britain out of the European Union. Many more sleepless nights feeling useless as a Tory MP than I was going to have during the, the drama of switching parties. For me, the key thing is that I had to be able to look anyone in the country in the eye and say I had permission to make the change. The only way I could guarantee getting permission was to go back to the voters on the spot, trigger a by-election, stand in the by-election and get their endorsement. I was expecting quite a lot of unpleasantness when I got back into the House of Commons, but I didn't come across any at all because far from regarding me as a defector, Many people, even former conservative colleagues recognized that what I had done had the blessing of those I'd been elected to represent. So actually I, I think it was probably the best thing I could have done. I went out of my way to try and keep it secret and by that I made sure that only a handful of people knew what I was intending to do. and obviously that meant that I couldn't have conversations with with the leadership. I always liked David Cameron actually. I've always thought he was a, a fundamentally decent man, and of course, He wasn't gonna be too happy that I was leaving his party and really ratcheting up the pressure to hold a referendum. Of course, he wasn't gonna like that. But I I never bore him any animus and I don't think he ever bore me any animus. Actually, I think because I called a by-election, it made it very difficult for anyone to feel any sort of ill will towards me. I suspect if I hadn't called a by-election, then there would be a lot of rancor and bitterness and quite rightly so.
1: I think Douglas Carswell, remember things slightly different. I definitely remember that Conservative Party conference that it followed uh, after both Douglas Carswell and Mark Reckless uh, quit. And Boris, um, David Cameron went round telling people, uh, uh, galvanising the party against him, saying he was going to, uh, particularly in the case of Mark Reckless, kick his fat ass off the Commons benches, was what David, Cap- uh, David Cameron kept saying. Uh, anyway, I, asked, I also asked David, uh, Douglas Carswell if he had any regrets about what he did.
5: Oh, I don't regret at all. I think it would be an exaggeration to say that history might be different if we hadn't have put the pressure on David Cameron the way me and others did. I think there is a direct line of events that goes from the Clacton by-election through to the concession of a referendum, through to Vote Leave's victory, through to Britain leaving the European Union. It was all part of the same movement. But look, I don't regret it at all because I was elected under the blue party colours. I switched party. I went back to the voters and got their blessing. Secondly, I called that by-election because I felt there's absolutely no point in switching from one party to another if you're not convinced that you can carry the support of your own electorate with you. Um, I understand that this chap in Bury South isn't going to call a by-election and I'm slightly baffled because at some point he's going to have to go back to the voters and ask for their blessing and if he's not confident that they're going to support him now, (laughs) Why does he think that they should possibly support him in the future? And then people say there's no precedent for calling by-elections, setting aside the fact that myself and Mark Reckless and Zach Goldsmith and others have done precisely that. Actually, there is a precedent. Until the First World War in Britain, by-elections were commonplace because every single time that a member of the House of Commons was invited to join the government, they had to stand down and face a by-election. By-elections were a normal part of the democratic process to confirm when it was that a member of the legislature switched sides and joined the government benches. And it's knowledge of that precedent that meant I felt unable to do anything other than trigger a by-election. By-elections are and have long been central as a form of confirmation hearing involving the electorate. And I I think it's actually rather odd and unfortunate that politicians feel they can switch from one party to another without calling a by-election.
1: That's Douglas Carswell making the case for having a by-election if you switch parties. He, of course, went from being Conservative MP to joining UKIP in 2014 and then did win at the by-election, which followed as a result. We're taking a look at the art of defections after Christian Wakeford went from Conservative Labour yesterday. And uh, do they work? Um, you know, you get a lot of... Attention on the day, maybe suggestions that Christian Wakeford might have actually um, galvanised support for Boris Johnson. Uh, we've already heard from Alan Howarth, the first Conservative MP to go straight to Labour back in 1995. Douglas Carswell was the Conservative MP who decided to join UKIP back in 2014. But now let's take a dip into the Times Red Box podcast archive back in early 2019. A group of Labour MPs uh, defected to form their own group, becoming known as the Independent Group. And then some Conservatives joined them. Anna Soubry was one of them, and uh, who, along with Sarah Wollaston and Heidi Allen, uh, went off and joined the seven Labour MPs uh, to join the Independent Group. Well, she held a press conference on why she'd chosen to do that, and as she was leaving, I caught up with her and ended up doing an extraordinary interview with her, walking through St. James's Park in the sunshine. She kept being stopped by people, congratulating her on what she'd done. And I asked her about why she quit and who tried to
7: persuade her to stay. I was quite I was quite surprised at how emotional I was because it's it's not dear friends in in the party here that troubles me. Actually it's the it's the people that you've been working with for the last in Brockstow gosh, how many years is it now? 12 years, 12, nearly 13 years, who have literally gone out in all the weathers, walked miles, handing out leaflets, knocking on doors. Th- that's where th- I personally find the hardest tug. Oh, we have a WhatsApp group, and last night people were saying, why hasn't Anna, you always, you always talk to us, why, why aren't you talking to us? Of course I couldn't. Well, thank God, because there is a mole on it, as we then discovered didn't bore you with. But you couldn't, and it was, for me it was quite heartbreaking that I couldn't say, look, guys, let me tell you I'm really sorry, but I have to leave. I, you know how unhappy I am, blah, 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 blah.
1: And you did, you got a bit choked in yeah? your no, 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 speech. Coming oh, you're shy, came this?
7: you came with us? Yeah, I did, I was quite surprised. Have you, have you had tears? No. No, I haven't, actually. Last week when I sat in PMQs and I thought, could this be my last PMQs? over in the naughty corner, and looked over and thought, will I, be, will I be over there? Will I be over there next week? I mean, I just didn't know. Yeah, but it felt, but actually,
1: it felt that imminent.
7: Find, oh, gosh, yes.
1: Were you basically waiting for somebody on the Labour side to jump first?
7: It always makes sense for them to go first because of the power of the appalling situation that they have found themselves in.
1: What's happened since? So you've had any contact at all with the Prime Minister, Nothing. Chief Whip? party chairman Nothing. nobody's Nothing. trying to persuade you to say I
7: promise you I too had had a member of the cabinet has sent me a text I won't say who to say don't go what's interesting is that
1: well like an emotional not just like a
7: no well was not uh, something I actually know terribly well um, and one or two that I do know terribly well it's as if they thought nah it's right this, this has got to happen because they themselves are absolutely struggling with the huge changes that have taken place in the Tory party.
1: Surely you, the Tory party is still rescuable, isn't it? With a non-disastrous Brexit and a change of leader, change you of could have leader. stayed there. Ah.
7: So here's the thing. I didn't I didn't say this today, but I'll say it to you. So here's the thing. Theresa is tolerated as leader because sensible Conservative members of Parliament fear that they will have an even worse alternative foisted upon them by the membership because the membership has changed and the idea and I've had this from somebody said well go out and recruit people I have been out and chuffing recruited people in the past but now they look at us and say I don't want to join your party why would somebody like me or even more importantly my daughters join the Tory party and especially because of Brexit I have to say I think the quality is is pitiful as well. You know, and this this inability to show courage. You know, you remember the the great... see, that was the difference about the Thatcher government. People talk about the Thatcher era and everything else. Remember the great big beasts there, the, the people of real ability, like the Ken Clarks, the Michael Heseltines. They, these were mighty, mighty political animals. Can you... I mean we
1: well, have got Chris Grayling. have
7: got Chris Grayling. See, I can now be really rude about some of these people. Chris <laughs> Grayling, I mean, why really? To God, I mean, a man who makes, has made a whole career as, as advanced on pitiful failure after failure. And it's like, he's going to screw it up and he'll get some other... It's a bit like working for the BBC, you know. You know, they do this in the BBC. If you're useless, they just sort of promote you across the way. They don't actually say, I'm "I'm awfully sorry, but you're crap and you're going. You know, it's like Chuka said, you don't join a political party to fight it and you don't stay in it when you've actually lost the battle. And we lost it when we lost the referendum. Now, my other exclusive, David Cameron sent me a text. Did he? Yeah, he did that. Today? Yeah, he asked me to stay. Did he? Yes. It was a bit late. (laughs) (laughs) He's a busy man. He's a very busy man. He's writing his book, but he did. And I thought, hey, DC sent me a text, pretty cool. And Zara goes, oh, Cameron's just sent me a... He oh, no, he's just sent me one. I went, was yours written in these terms? It was the same one to all three. But saying... As if we wouldn't compare. <laughs> you
1: know? Please, that's, that's message discipline, you say. What did it say?
7: Oh, God, I can't even find it because there's so many texts in here. Like God, your, phone, your phone
1: is literally just lighting up constantly with messages. No wonder funny. you weren't—you never replied yeah. to any of mine.
7: No, honestly, it's a bit mad at the moment.
1: OK, so here it goes. Hey. Hate going on rumours, but is it too late to persuade you to stay? Love and best wishes, I DC.
7: Do I do, I do, actually. Do you know, I, I'm terribly nostalgic for that brilliant coalition government.
1: Uh, that was Anna Subri speaking to me back in 2019 when she defected from Conservative to the independent group. That, of course, then became Change UK. Then a lot of them went on uh, to join the Lib Dems and uh, didn't didn't end particularly well, didn't end particularly well. Um, speaking of someone going from the Conservatives, uh, in fact, direct to the Lib Dems, uh, perhaps the, the most recent um, uh, comparison to uh, Christian Wakeford was when uh, Philip Lee uh, in uh, the autumn of 2019 uh, literally got up and walked from uh, the Conservative side uh, to join the Lib Dems in the House of Commons in protest at Boris Johnson's premiership. And Philip Lee joins me now. Morning, Philip. Morning, Matt. Um, is this sort of brought it all, all back to you? Um, uh, what, what happened back then, seeing what's happened with Christian Wakeford?
6: Well, on a personal level, I, I, I remember it being sort of quite stressful, crossing the floor and joining a new party. I, I would stop short of comparing my defection to his. In that mine was sort of clearly about the Brexit issue and the elevation of Boris Johnson to being Prime Minister. And also, in the act of doing it, I took away the government's sort of working majority, I didn't expect, however, to be in the general election two to three months later. That wasn't part of the plan, and I wish that decision hadn't been made. Um, But I I, I sort of looked on yesterday, sort of aghast, how somebody could have stood the 2019 general election on that Tory manifesto with that Tory Prime Minister and now suddenly he's jumping ship into the Labour Party saying that he just doesn't believe the party stands for what's in the best interest of his constituents I mean what has changed demonstrably I don't think anything has in the last couple of years I think Boris Johnson's always been like this. Those of us who refused to stand for the Conservative Party or joined other parties in 2019 all knew that the elevating him to being PM was, was wrong on so many levels and unfortunately, probably with COVID sort of accelerating this process, more and more people are realising how unsuitable he is to be prime minister. But for one of them to be a Tory MP who stood for election in 2019, I don't know. I think that it stresses it for me as far as I'm concerned, man. How long did it take? Um, t- take me back then.
1: The your, the the secret plan for you to cross the floor. I mean, literally. I mean, I had a conversation with someone uh, yesterday who, yeah. uh, in fact, it, it was it was one of uh, another MP who was about to defect to the Lib Dems, and they yeah. they'd been spotted in a restaurant. And yeah. the person I spoke to yesterday said they phoned a journalist and said, uh, "You'll never guess what I've just seen." This MP with the Lib Dems. I think they might be defecting. The journalist said, "Oh no, no, I think there's nothing there. Uh, well, I might look into it. I not I, I doubt that's what's happened." because that <laughs> journalist had it as an exclusive and didn't want yeah. to uh, to tip off the but per- I mean it did strike me meeting at a meeting at a restaurant was probably quite high risk how did you make sure it was all kept quiet and how and making that decision to to so dramatically literally walk across the commons.
6: I had a a sort of friendship, a working relationship with Alistair Carmichael, which had started on a, as I recall, on a delegation. I was chairman of an all-party group in the Middle East, and and, um, he'd come on the trip, and we'd got on very well on the trip, and um, we'd stayed friends. And the initial sort of reaching out from him occurred a few months before I crossed the floor. I must stress that, and I only ever dealt with him, so that's why there was no there was no breaking of, of the confidence of that, and that's why no one knew. I um, did not expect to do it in September 2019. If I'm honest, I thought it would be later in the year. Uh, my expectation, if you recall those those events of that period, was that the Ben Act was going to come back. I was part of that Ben group, so I knew that that was coming, and I thought that actually it was going to be down the line. I mean, I spent most of that summer just sort of seriously thinking about, right, OK, is this going to work for me? Does, does this party that I seek to join, does it fit with me? Am I comfortable with that? So it wasn't just about Brexit. I went through the the, the sort of Lib Dem positions on every policy with a fine tooth comb um, and then came back expecting it to be later in the year. But in fact, what happened was when the, the, the government of the day started lying to the Queen and, and all the prorogation stuff, I I, I acted because, as far as I was concerned, it was in the national interest, my view was, to get Brexit back to the people to make a decision on whether we actually proceed with it or not. We ultimately failed in that endeavour, I think in great part because we went for a snap election in December, which we didn't need to do, but that's, that's for others to reflect upon. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget
1: you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at Lutonrising.org.uk.